Welcome to episode 16 of the 18th Shadow Radio. This is your author and narrator, John Lee Grafton. The 18th Shadow, Phase 2, Voices in the Stream, Chapter 2.5, Fractures in the Daydream. April 2081, one year, six months before event. The sunlight falling over the hardwood floor gave the polished boards a rich orange glow. Dorothy smiled at the color, opening her sapphire eyes and rolling over in the moments between dreaming and light, letting the sounds of morning fill her ears. Blue jays, sparrows, and cardinals chitted busily amongst the lime-toned bloom leaves of the tree outside their window. She loved the fact that it was their window, their apartment. They even had their own entrance, outside stairs running diagonally up the back of the farmhouse. Their own kitchen, their own sonic laundry. Dorothy luxuriated in this thin shred of separation, just as she luxuriated in the sensation of warm sheets on her skin, a cool breeze coming lazily through the open window. The breeze brought familiar smells of prairie grass and tilled dirt, hickory bark and first-pass marijuana plantings. Home. She sat up and looked at her husband, grateful he was able to find sleep. His eyelids flitted to and fro over some no-doubt-less-than-pleasant dream. Occasionally he gritted his teeth. William never asked for this. She had certainly not. Yet, it was the best life either of them had ever known. What does that say about us? Despite the substantial sums they were paid each month, those digidollars went straight through the laundry into an encrypted account. An escape account, Dax called it. Certainly they did not want for any comfort, though theirs was not the weather-clad life of luxury portrayed by drug dealers on the holoflicks either. Their space was sparse, filled with furniture she had dragged William to select at various garage sales and CNED personal effects auctions. She loved 20th century antiques. Anything was stainless steel and formica or vinyl. The United States of a century past must have been amazing. It was the yellow, wallpapered days of the 1970s that she yearned for. One of her most treasured possessions was an antique holograph, photograph, as it was called, of her great-grandparents standing beside a car in their driveway. Her grandparents had driven around the streets of Salina, Kansas, in a vehicle that ran on gasoline, rolled on steel and rubber wheels, shaking over every imperfection, crack, and pothole. She smiled at the romantic notion. Here in 2081, everything was done for you. The sky itself ran on automatic. That the old-fashioned clock hanging above their kitchen sink was nothing more than a hologram, Dorothy lamented. Below it, a holovid provided a real-time view of the world from the top of the farmhouse, complete with temperature, humidity, and wind direction. Their coffee maker, networked to her combud biorhythm app, had ground its beans and begun brewing the second her brainwaves indicated a waking state. The smell was delicious. The practicality and efficiency of it all was irritatingly enjoyable. But Dorothy still wished it was April of 1974. She leaned back into bed, resting her head in her hand. Her eyes again found the sleeping form of her husband. Dorothy loved the way nudity brought him out of her character. He was no longer this modern-day wild man in a cowboy hat. He was simply her husband, the hunter from Oklahoma. Faithful, pained, quiet, honest, forthright, and beautiful. He was her man as she knew him, 
even if to Dax Abner he was something more magical. She grabbed a vapor joint off the end table and took a couple of drags, watching the smoky water vapor curl towards the ceiling. Vision recommended, after all, she said to herself before turning her attention back to her man. William was easily objectified. She noticed a few gray hairs poking through his perpetual five o'clock shadow, but the hair on his head was still sandy blonde, wavy without the hat. She inhaled his smell, wishing she could bottle that earthen odor and carry it with her. Their marriage had seemed inevitable, one of the many inevitabilities that had catapulted her into this sunny life of crime, all starting with the day Dax Abner had walked into the rowdy pony. Little had she known that agreeing to work for the handsome foreigner in pumpkin botany also meant meeting her future husband. She might as well have been a magnet thrown in front of a lev train. There was no escaping the force of Dax Abner's will. Is it okay that I secretly love Dax's power? She would never forget that May afternoon, stepping out of the hove limo and onto the farm circle drive beneath the shade of the huge cottonwood. What a crew that had greeted her. Dax Abner first, wearing both his fine Italian suit and perfect decorum. Then Freya, Siegfried, Lofen, and Snotra, all posing as run-of-the-mill organic Rottweilers. Hugo, with his full-sleeve tattoos pouring down his arms and a grin the size of the Yucatan, blowing his constant cloud of Jane. Ms. Nichols, allow me to introduce you to my chief of security, Mr. William Thomas Angevine. Dax had known. Joan ran her psychological profile through a compatibility matrix. Voila, instant husband. Every girl should have a dolphin. Oh, wait. She thought William was some kind of actor, larger than life, standing there in his aviator sunglasses and brown leather cowboy boots with the square toes, surrounded by Rottweilers. The tight-fitting white t-shirt tucked into the worn black leather belt with a plain pewter buckle. The hemp straw cowboy hat. Those ridiculous sideburns. Talk, I'm blended. How had William come through the horror of what he could remember only in dreams, with a heart that could still be broken? If his heart broke again, it would be her fault. And Tara's. She smiled and shook her fist in imaginary anger, gazing at the ceiling above where Tara and Dax lived in the attic. Dorothy tossed the sheets off and grabbed her robe from the back of the bed. Chilly toes on the hardwoods, but she had to pee. She tiptoed across the creaking floorboards and ducked behind the half wall made of glass blocks that hid the stool and sonic shower. She relieved herself, washed her hands, then padded over to the kitchen for a glass of water. The kitchen comm note recognized her proximity and chatted merrily into her comm bud. Good morning, Dorothy Nichols. You were scheduled to report to aquarium control for operator duty at noon. Got it. Would you like me to remind you 30 minutes in advance? Mute, she thought, and the comm stopped speaking. She poured a glass of water from the reverse osmosis dispenser and drank it slowly, looking back across their 200-square-meter apartment. The bed was at the opposite end from the kitchen, and the open-air bathroom was against the far wall, beside the door to their back stairs. A red and blue oriental rug in the center of the room drew the eye. She practiced yoga on that rug. The very same rug. She finished the water, padded back to bed, and tucked her chilly toes back under the covers. She picked up the vapor joint and resumed staring at the ceiling. What are you and Dax doing, Tara? They never heard them. Of course, the rebuilt facade of a 20th century farmhouse was what surrounded them. 
She knew the interior had been reconstructed with layers of rubcrete insulation between the floors and walls to guard against the dogs' unit's gravitemporal feedback being picked up by a high-altitude drone. All the same, Dorothy secretly yearned to hear something from the couple above, a bedpost scooting a soft moan. It was difficult for her to imagine Dax Abner not wearing a suit, let alone naked in the throes of passion with Tara. What throes of passion, though? Dorothy didn't like that the thought of them having one another was so stimulating. She was becoming obsessed, and she knew damn well why. It was six Saturdays prior. The boys had gone into town with Siegfried to scan a new field recruit. Of course, having a drink at the Green Lady Lounge was on the agenda, too. The rains had been falling since noon that Saturday, thundering gray and lonesome across the prairie. Joan, the being who managed them all, swam disconnected through her liquid world while the lady cyborgs, Freya, Lofen, and Snotra kept their reticent, gigantic packmaster company in the warehouse below the barn. Thor. Dorothy had been daydreaming of the creature that he was, always on stream, yet almost always motionless. Unless left alone, in which case he would dutifully patrol the interior perimeter of the warehouse or barn with heavy metal steps. Even Goran and Kat had lost all fear of the massive cyborg. Nonetheless, every time Dorothy walked past his quiet form, her mind ran wild with fantasy. She imagined the tension building, night after silent night, within this mountain of titanolume and graphene. One day he would snap and burst through the asphalt floor of the barn in a single leap, firing lasers and destroying everything in sight. Thor was a force of nature, and like the thunderstorms tearing across the plains from Colorado that day, she was certain that once unleashed, his rage would be without remorse. Yet, the cybernetic packmaster slept dutifully and remained silent, utterly powerful, devoted to William. The conflicting sense of peace and danger that accompanied this knowledge, combined with the lightning and steady sound of falling rain, had made it a perfect time for Taradine to appear, snapping Dorothy from her thoughts. Tara always arrived when there was electricity in the air. Dorothy had finished practicing yoga only a few minutes earlier. She was sitting half-lotus on the oriental rug in the center of the apartment. A stick of incense burned on the kitchen counter. The comm was tuned to the ambient transient streamcast on kjhk.hollow, low-volume acid jazz bumping from invisible speakers in the walls. A turn-of-the-century lamp glowed on a low table in front of the window. The only other light came from the unnerving flashes of lightning and a few old-fashioned wax candles burning demurely on the antique red formica dining table in the apartment kitchen. Whenever their schedules allowed, Tara and Dorothy practiced yoga together. Tara was irritatingly and beguilingly the apex of the female form. She would walk into the room and gracefully swan-dive into a low plank, rolling her legs forward until she was balancing on one arm in the incredibly difficult wounded peacock pose. She would lazily hold wounded peacock for 120 seconds on each side, then spend 20 minutes in a headstand as though it were no big deal. Irritating. Beguiling. This night, however, there had been no joint practice. Dorothy was just standing to shower when Tara tried to push her way in. Dorothy had latched the door to keep her irrational fear of the thunder at bay. She walked over, toweling sweat from her face, and opened it to find Tara smiling wickedly. A four-liter mason of dark beer was tucked under her arm. Dorothy smiled back. This porter was a rich, black brew made with the sky's blessing by a red-nosed city priest named Father Tom McTone. Tara, you're barefoot and half-soaked. 
Tara looked past her at the candles and yoga mat. I didn't interrupt practice, did I? No, just finished. Come on in. Tara slipped straight to their kitchen and snatched a couple glasses from the cupboard. You'll drink with me then? We're the only humans left on site. Dorothy closed the door and returned to her yoga mat on the oriental rug. Sure, beer sounds nice, but I still don't see why you're soaking wet. I know you didn't walk here from the Ninth Street Mission. Tara kicked her boots off and plopped down on the opposite end of the yoga mat with the glasses and beer jug. I don't know what's got into me today, she grinned. The rain just felt so good, these warm springs. I was dancing with the thunder outside, and I'm so happy. She shrugged. I don't know what it is. Dorothy smiled as Tara filled her glass. You got out of the hub car and just started dancing in the rain. Tara held up her glass. Cheers! Their glasses clinked brightly as another bolt of lightning flashed, then both took deep sips of the porter. That lights the grid. Thanks, said Dorothy, trying not to stare at Tara's drenched clothing. Ain't nothing, Tara said. Just glad you're here. And yes, like, I felt like dancing in the rain. I imagined there were people hiding, watching me from the woods, but not in a creepy way. Do you ever just feel like spinning in one place until you're dizzy, like when you were a kid? Dorothy shook her head. Not exactly. I feel like doing yoga most days. Tara rolled her eyes. Ugh. I know. Every evening at six, you gotta loosen up. You keep telling me that. You want a towel? You're nipping out something fierce. Tara looked down at her breasts and stuck her bottom lip out. Oh, I guess I am. No, I'm good. It's hot in here. I'll dry off. We're all the boy folk tonight. Church? The girls giggled. Yes, William is officiating as Garan and Kat renew their vows. Dax and Hugo are witnesses. No bets. Dorothy glanced offhanded at the touchscreen interface on the wall, which was dark except for a small green circle in the upper right-hand corner. No, super quiet. Even Joan's off-stream. The only boy on site's Thor. Dax took everyone into town with Siegfried to interview some new recruit at the Lady. New recruit? Is he cute? Tara smirked. Hell, if I know. He's some idiot who's been itching to get into the biz. Hmm. If he wants to be in the shine business so bad, that's not a good sign. Dorothy shrugged. I don't know. Dax will do his mind voodoo on him to be safe. I'm sure Jones cross-checked every event in the kid's life, you know. They think he can handle it. The boy's going to help Hugo mule shipments down the gauntlet. Alluring, said Tara. What? Alluring is what we do, not mind voodoo. See, like this. Look into my eyes. Dorothy watched Tara's pupils dilate and instantly began to feel a pleasant warming pass through her belly into her thighs. Then Tara closed her eyes. When she reopened them a moment later, her pupils had returned to normal. The feeling slipped away. Dorothy slapped Tara's knee. Stop it! You know you're not supposed to do that. You didn't like it? You're not that cool. Dorothy stood and walked to the bedside table. She grabbed her vapor joint and returned to the mat. Blend with me. Got a new strain from Purple Tree called the Riptide, 7030 Indica Sativa Hydrid. It's absolutely divine. Hey, when in Rome? Tara smiled. Just don't tell my mom. An hour along found the girls well buzzed. The early evening thunder continued, occasionally drowning out the bright sounds of their laughter. Oh shit, shit, said Dorothy. I totally forgot. Yes, William does look cute in a suit, doesn't he? That was the only time it's happened. I wonder how Dax would look in jeans and a cowboy hat. Tara took another hit off the vapor joint, trying to suppress a stone giggle. Geeky as fuck is how. I don't think the old man's even ever worn boots. Actually not true. Dorothy grabbed Tara's hand. The day you came to us, 
Dax put on some brand new insulated overalls and boots. He took the solar mule into the field with William and Hugo to get you, remember? Well, of course you don't, but you've heard the story how many times? I watched him personally carry you home in the solar mule. Dorothy wrapped her arms around herself and looked at Tara with puppy eyes. Aw, he was so spun. It was seriously so romantic. Oh, golly gee. Tara feigned a modest expression, looking slightly uncomfortable. Yeah, they're good boys, for sure. She looked up. Did you know Dax was my first true love? Oh, come on. You must have a thousand notches in your gun. Tara shrugged coyly. Well, yeah, getting laid, maybe, but a relationship love? No, he's the first, for reals. Well, you landed the big boss, and Dax is hot. Dorothy took another hit off the vapor joint and passed it back, watching Tara put her lips around the smooth cylinder and inhale. I'd say we both picked some fine fellas, handsome too, in very, very different ways. Tara pretended to be serious. Hey, good Bettys too, we're fucking awesome. She looked straight at Dorothy. You know I lost my best friend Layla back in California a long time ago. You're all I've got now. I seriously don't think I could do this without you. Dorothy felt her face flush. You know I love you too. They held their glasses up and finished off their third pint each, still holding hands. Dorothy set her glass on their oriental rug. She looked into Tara's eyes and felt the swoon once more. Tara was painfully attractive. Dorothy had thought it before. That evening, as Tara sat before her in a blouse dampened by fresh rain, the thought was no different. Like Dax, her loveliness seemed to transcend gender. Tell me about your star tattoos, said Dorothy. They start big at the top and then get smaller and smaller at the bottom until they're just dots. She reached out and traced the illustration with her finger down Tara's neck to her shoulder. I love how they just fall like that. Tara looked momentarily sad, then raised her luminescent green eyes. It's a drawing Layla did when we were kids. She gave it to me before they sent me away. When I came back from the hospital that first time, her family had moved on to New Miami. It was to keep us apart, I think. I never saw her again. Layla used to say that in the end, we're all just stardust. So I got the tattoo to help me remember that. Without knowing why, Dorothy squeezed Tara's hand. I want you to make me. You want me to make you what? I want you to make me want it. She pulled Tara close and kissed her, surprising even herself. Tara's response was fluid, elegant. She tasted like raindrops and wind. She relinquished any resistance, parted her lips, and let Dorothy's tongue find hers. Their kissing was sudden and passionate. Dorothy put her hand on Tara's firm breast and squeezed, eliciting a moan of soft pleasure as her fingers found the nipple and held it tight. Dorothy pulled Tara on top of her, fell back on the oriental rug, and opened her legs. The candlelight threw yellow shadows across their skin as they kissed, streaming acid jazz and the sounds of thunder mingling perfectly with the fleeing light and the rhythm of their bodies. Dorothy gasped with pleasure. Tara's hand moved down between her tights, between her legs. Her fingers massaged gently at first, moving in a deft circle. Then the wetness came and Tara pushed two fingers inside easily, holding Dorothy's head to the floor and kissing her exposed neck. Dorothy started to flow, her hips grinding in rhythm, gasping with pleasure. After only a few more seconds, the shudder came. She let loose, relaxed completely, covered in a delicate sheen of new, sweet sweat. At last, Dorothy opened her eyes, feeling surprised as she pushed away and sat up. What the hell was that? She said, breathless. I just said, make me want it. You weren't supposed to allure me. 
Tara sat back on her heels, putting a finger in her mouth. Doesn't taste like I allergy you. Stop it. Tara's emerald eyes followed every move that Dorothy made, like a cat watching its prey. Oh, relax. I didn't do anything to you. She crossed herself. Cross my heart and hope to sky. It was you this time. Last time we made out, it was definitely me. But this time... Dorothy drew her knees to her chest, closing her eyes and shaking off the delirium. But no, no, I don't even like girls. She looked at Tara with a pouting smirk, again reaching for her hand. Tara said, Oh, don't give me that, blonde like you. I'm the only Betty ever. Dorothy shook her hair out of a ponytail and dropped Tara's hand. She picked up the vapor joint and took a hit to distract herself. I mean, I've kissed girls. I went to college. Tara giggled. Right. Well, I didn't. But hey, I promise the rest of that, beyond the kiss, wasn't me. Dorothy felt exposed, vital. She crossed her legs and sat up straight, eyes darting around the room, nothing in particular. Well, we can't. I mean, we shouldn't. If the boys found out, they'd freak. Tara rolled her eyes. Shit. I'm pretty sure the boys would be fine with it. What's the big deal? Who's to say we shouldn't? Dorothy was drunk. She didn't have to admit anything. We work together. Your boyfriend is my husband's boss. My husband is Dax's best friend. Tara stood effortlessly and sashayed over to the toilet. Semantics. She peeked around the glass block half wall while peeing, looking like a lady devil. Dory, baby, someday you're going to have to stop being such a piece of carbon. People are going to tell you what to do forever if you don't. Drink this, smoke that, float this way. Don't kiss Betty's because you're not supposed to like it. Tara grabbed a square of toilet paper and rolled her eyes as she dabbed herself. Sometimes you just got to be in the moment. Say, fuck it. Live and die by the desire of the present. Let nothing else guide you. Dorothy looked at the yoga mat beneath her. Why? Is that what you do? Absolutely. So you're a hedonist? No, I'm just not afraid to die, said Tara, standing up. Then why did you fight so hard to escape from BMOD? Because going through the slaughterhouse and coming out the other side would be worse than death. Besides, I... Tara's expression melted away. She stopped talking and pulled her pants up. With vagueness in her eyes, she turned, staring at the north wall, reaching out a hand as though touching an invisible apparition. Dorothy frowned. You all right? Tara walked to the center of the room and brought her index finger to her lips. Shh! Can't you hear that? Dorothy looked around the apartment. The steady patter of raindrops on the staircase continued outside the door. Lightning flashed beyond the window. Acid jazz still streamed through the calm. She looked back at Tara, whose expression remained transfixed. Honey, I can't hear a thing. You're freaking me out. Tara slowly turned until she was looking Dorothy in the eye. Oh, shit. What? She's dying. Who is dying? Dorothy exclaimed. Tara opened her mouth to speak when a peeling klaxon split the air. A flash of lightning filled the apartment, followed by a sledgehammer of thunder that shook the house. When the thunder abated, the music had muted. The klaxon bleated loudly. Every light in the room burst to full illumination. Tara walked towards the window and looked out, intent, a vague smile turning the corner of her mouth. Then she opened the door and walked out into the rain. Dorothy leapt up from the floor, ran to the window. She nearly choked. 
on the far side of the lawn, between the house and woods, sat Coyote One. The cyborg's single, glowing blue eye was fixed on their apartment. Tara was already halfway down the stairs. Dorothy whispered to herself, You gotta be... She winced as William's gruff voice peeled into her combud. Baby, you okay? We just got an L4 proximity alert. Dorothy snapped from the daze at the sound of her husband's voice. I don't know. We've got coyotes in the backyard. Tara's in some kind of trance. I gotta get Joan. Calm down. There must be static on the... Dorothy screamed back. Don't tell me to calm down. There's a coyote in the yard. Just get here. She tapped her combud, switching streams. Joan, of all times, don't be dark now. Please, dogs units, help us, help! It had been 30 seconds since Tara walked to the window. Only a lone floodlight on a utility pole between the house and barn illuminated the yard. Dorothy could no longer see Tara through the window. The coyote, however, remained motionless in a seated position on the far side of the grass near the edge of the woods. Dorothy threw open the door and ran into the rain barefoot, practically flying down the metal stairs. There was Tara, walking straight across the lawn as if magnetized to the creature. Dorothy screamed, Tara! Tara, stop! As Dorothy began to run, Joan's voice popped into her calm. Dorothy Marie Nichols, please halt. You are in danger. Feral cyborg proximity alert. Dorothy stopped running, aware there was nothing she could do from that distance. No shit, Joan. Where the sky are the Borgs? Tara was just five meters away. We are here. The side door of the barn opened. Seconds later, a howling black blur erupted from it. Freya ripped up divots of wet turf as she tore across the lawn towards the coyote. Even with her speed, she would never make it. Behind her, two more black blurs appeared, Snotra and Lofen, red eyes glowing, forming tracers as they accelerated. The dogs' units moved so quickly their forms would have been invisible were it not for the rainfall waking around them as they galloped. Behind them, two security drones buzzed out of the barn rafters, cameras sweeping, sensor arrays coming on stream. Dorothy fell to her knees, terror clutching her throat. No, no, no! As soon as Freya had appeared from the barn, in the moments before Tara made contact, Coyote One rolled onto her back. The small gray cyborg tucked her tail between her legs and bent her paws passively forward. Dorothy wiped her eyes in disbelief. Tara knelt over the prostrate cyborg and put one hand in its mouth. The coyote appeared to bite down. Freya was almost to them. At the last second, Tara held up her free hand and screamed, Stop! Freya, unable to contain her momentum, leapt over her target. Seconds later, Snotra and Lofen skidded to a nearby halt, tearing shallow divots in the wet bluegrass. Freya circled back, moving faster than Dorothy had ever seen. All three dogs' units encircled Tara Dean, heads tilted in confusion, processing conflicting data as she knelt protectively over the coyote's body. Dorothy ran to them, rain-soaked grass sloshing between her toes. She was shocked to see Tara now cradling the animal's tattered head. One of her fingers was impaled on the coyote's incisor. Freya, Snotra, and Lofen paced and circled, snarling and confused. Dorothy heard Joan's voice again. The coyote unit is no longer a threat. I have a partial relay with its neural net. I repeat, unit is secure. As Dorothy walked up, Freya, Snotra, and Lofen turned to face her, forming a line between her and the coyote. Dorothy tapped her combud angrily. Joan, get these mutts out of my way before I have them melted into routers. The computerized transcription of Joan's voice was clear and steady. 
Dorothy Marie Nichols, as you are fully aware, cyborgs Gamma, Delta, and Epsilon function independently. If they are not behaving according to your wishes, I would recommend communicating with your selected mate, William Thomas Angevine. He is the te- Oh, shut up, Joan! Dorothy cut the comm and shouted over the dog's units. Tara, look at me! The rain made a deafening sound, pattering against the forest leaves before them. Slowly, Tara looked over her shoulder, smiling, eyes as black as the space between stars, not even a hint of green. She kept her pierced fingertip on the coyote's tooth and spoke as if from the far end of a dream. It's okay, Dory. It really is. It's beautiful. I can see their hearts working. Dorothy couldn't tell in the darkness if it was rain running down her friend's face or tears. All the same, Tara looked blissful. Blood from her pierced finger reddened the long metal tooth. Cody One remained on her back. The cyborg was completely motionless, with her blue eye now glowing a gentle violet closer to the pure red of their own Rottweiler's vidorbs. Dorothy was furious that the dog's units wouldn't let her pass, and frightened that her friend was acting insane. Are you sure you're all right? Please, Tara, I'm so scared. Tara closed her eyes and turned to face the stormy sky. I'm okay. I promise I'm not insane. She's come home, Dory. She needs our help. Dorothy tried to go to Tara's side. The dog's units again blocked her path, predicting her actions. Frustrated, she finally gave up and answered her pinging combat. I'm here. Yes, I know. Tara let it bite her. I know, but I'm looking right at her. She's fine. Joan says it's under control. The thing's just lying on its back. Will you please just get here? Yes, I'm fine. No, they won't let me get close. They're being very, very bad girls. Just get here, okay? Okay, you too. She cut the calm and looked at her friend. Tara, honey, talk to me. Tara kept her face to the sky. I'm so fine, she said deliriously. Great. Well, I'm freezing my tits off. I'm going to go put some dry clothes on. I'll get a blanket and bandages. I'll be right back. Tara's voice was ethereal as she turned back to Coyote One and began petting its stomach. No problem. Dorothy ran across the wide open yard to the farmhouse. Snowter and Lofen followed her dutifully all the way up the outside stairs into their apartment. Only Freya remained outside, protectively circling Tara Dean and the coyote, unable to suppress the storm of dark, rainy snarls shivering through her chassis. March 2081. One year, seven months before event. The whole thing stinks, said William, spinning in his control chair. The dolphin's voice was steady and reassuring. The individual known as Virgil Benedict is 20 years of age, born in Olathe, Kansas on January 13, 2061. Facial recognition results adjusted for surgical rebranding, negative, Standard subdermal combud frequency of 5900 MHz, IPv7 address 2071, colon string, locked and mirrored for the last 389 days. This individual is an alcohol consumer who publicly supports decriminalization while simultaneously functioning as a low-level CNED informant. However, for those 389 days, his reports have been made to me. Virgil Benedict is psychologically unstable his original assignment, as directed by CNED, was to gather intel on potential campus recidivists freshly discharged from Greystone Behavioral Modification Hospital. 
This led him to establishing a friendship with Spencer Robert Hotshine. This boy needs a swift kick in the dick, said William. Who the hell is Spencer Hotshine? Spencer Robert Hotshine is a custodian at Greystone Behavioral Modification Hospital. His hovcar was stolen by Tara Dean the night of her escape from that facility. Dax Abner's eyebrows raised in silent question. William looked at the refracting dance of light and shadow emanating from Joan's habitat across the cement floor. He scratched his sideburns. Anything adverse on Hotshine, Joan? Aside from being Tara's patsy? Negative. Spencer Robert Hotshine is unknowingly the subject of random CNED surveillance due to his involvement in the Greystone incident. Aside from this, he has no white associations. He and Virgil Benedict are frequent black market alcohol consumers. After a few seconds, William looked at Dax. Could be good. Both these ninnies are chipped. If we can get to Hotshine through Virgil, we may have a plug inside the county's biggest slaughterhouse. But do we need that? I've told you some things about my mother, Dax said morosely. You told me she's how all this got started, that she died for the cause. Yes, said Dax, tenting his fingers. Like each of us, she had a particular gift, an uncanny ability to accurately predict the future. It's how she made her fortune. Dope. Dope indeed. Dax's eyes drifted to the glass aquarium wall. She told me to find the poet. What were her specific words, Joan? Your mother's exact words were, Find the broken baby. Find the white poet. If he survives a year, bring him closer. He is the catalyst, the final first city component, said Joan, pectoral fins undulating steadily as she floated. Dax turned his gaze to William. So, that is why. Mother has been right about everything else. Trust me, I'm not selecting morons at random. William's eyes narrowed. I still don't like it. We let him know where the lady is, all your patrons are at risk, let alone us. What if he decides to report to CNED in person one day? He won't. How do you know? I can be fairly persuasive when pressed. Not to mention Joan's sway over the boy. Virgil Benedict is under strict orders to report only via encrypted hollow conference. He believes his contact is a high-level Lawrence CNED agent named Bubba Sparks. Even as he espouses decriminalization in his private life, he lives in terror of CNED retribution. He will continue to do as he is told. William spun on a boot and leaned against the aquarium. I don't mean no offense, but if your mom could read the future so well, how come she took a bullet out in Washington? Dax stood. She was betrayed by my father. Specifically, she did not take a bullet, as the media reported. In reality, white agents tied a chain to each of her limbs, William. Four Batborg Doberman pinches were on the other ends of those chains. After they were done torturing her, unable to get her to divulge any useful information, the CNED agents handling the interrogation made the cyborgs rip her body into quarter segments. William did not look up. I'm sorry, I meant no... Not another worry, my friend, said Dax lightly, patting William on the shoulder. It's ancient history. All the same, I am compelled to overlook your objection in this case. The details of Virgil Benedict's life match my mother's description perfectly. He is a poet. How many poets could there possibly be? He is our catalyst. If he becomes a legitimate liability, I'll have you remove him. You're the boss, 
William nodded. Dax mused. Indeed, I am. Joan, have young Virgil meet us at the Green Lady Lounge in one hour. Tara is off begging for beer with the preacher, I believe, doing dog knows what else. Dorothy is preparing for an evening of yoga, you say? Yeah, the rain makes her sleepy. She wants to stay in and stream a holoflix. I told her it's boys' night. Very well, Dax spun to the dolphin. Joan, we are going to the bar. We'll need Siegfried. And I can't imagine anything exciting happening this evening, so if you'd care to take a nap yourself, please do. Do not be ridiculous, said Joan. I will, however, take this opportunity to disengage from the neural net and defrag the holodrive's beta quadrant. Enjoy your time. I will see you again, Doxon Julius Abner. 76 minutes later. Virgil Benedict was being followed. The rain fell around him in sheets. The day's light was nearly dead. He had circled the block three times, his backpack full of antique books getting heavy. The two figures in green had stayed with him, getting closer until this last pass. Virgil had tried putting his hood up and walking through the shadows. I think I lost them. He was disoriented. He shouldn't have had those beers, but he was nervous. Virgil took a white federal plesium dispenser from his blazer pocket and popped a tablet, then a second for good measure. Disoriented or not, every halfway conscious citizen of Lawrence, Kansas, knew where the rowdy pony was. He also knew well the alley that ran behind the coffee house, bisecting the ancient buildings that fronted Massachusetts and New Hampshire streets. He had rounded the corner, just as the contact's message said to. He had walked five meters south down the alley and waited, three times now. This was the spot. He looked around again. One dingy brick wall behind Sunflower Hovbike Shop featured an old, hand-painted CNED advertisement. The white, green, and black paint of the CNED fist logo was peeling and faded. Below the logo were printed common CNED slogans. Do the right thing. Get paid. Keep alcohol out of our homes. Make friends. Help others. It's easy to make the white choice. The opposite end of the alley was just a plain cement wall, covered in hand-scrawled graffiti that read, Ban Android Form Factor. Gutters on both sides dumped torrents of rain past his tennis shoes, soaking the bottoms of his ankle-biting jeans. He could hear lively banter echoing from the pony, and more coming from another bar called the Vapor Room, around the corner by the early 21st century antiques bazaar. Why do I have to meet this William dude in an alley to talk about a job? Virgil shivered profusely. He was not comfortable being outdoors. He decided to go back into the pony and try to ping again directly. He turned up the alley. One of the figures in green, coming off the sidewalk, was headed straight towards him. White armband, humdroid. Oh man, do I tell them? No, Bubba said I can't speak to anyone. Shit. He whipped around and was met by a small, hard-faced woman with a mug like a ferret who stepped from behind a bulky, rusted bio-waste converter. The woman was ancient, easily in her forties. Her green Cena jumpsuit shed the rain, but her hair was wet and her smile was slinky. What you walking around the block for, son? She cackled. Normal citizens don't circle the block. They go where they need to be. Stay there. Virgil felt like he might pee and babbled. I am just waiting on a friend. In the rain? The woman's nappy brown hair was cropped short. Her tongue licked her thin lips as she devoured him with her eyes and stepped cautiously closer. I was just going to the pony lady. 
Well, why don't you go there? I I will. Virgil turned and ran straight into the other agent, a towering man who looked like an angry, clean-shaven Viking. He had his arms folded across his chest. Big fellow. Orange hud goggles obscured his eyes. No, you won't, boy, the Viking said coldly. We picked up your whiff trail twenty minutes ago. Thought you might lead us somewhere good. Got any boozebum friends around here? He looked up and down the alley, goggles scanning, then retrained his focus on Virgil. Tell us now and we can let you off a diversion. Bubba's had a good mole. He's a quiet mole. Oh, man. Virgil started to tremble, but managed to stammer. I know my rights. The woman started cackling. Rights? He knows his rights, Joe. The big Viking agent grabbed Virgil's sweatshirt with a white glove fist and shoved him hard against the alley wall. Citizen, you been drinking? You got no rights? Where's the party? Virgil began to tear up. No, I'm sorry. I don't know about any party. Shut up, Dixie, hissed the woman. She nodded at her partner. Hey, Joe, Cod's coming. Protocol, protocol. Virgil and the CNED agents turned their heads. The black drone flew steadily towards them. It had come around the corner off 8th Street, making a standard alley sweep. Virgil sank against the wall with dismay. The drone's LED array was green, but it would turn red in moments, bypassing his combud's firewall following the CNED agent's auto-request. I have to tell them, so, so not a good time. Why ain't it stopping? asked the Viking, tapping the interface on his hug goggles. Oddly, the drone did not change course. Its LED array remained green. It floated past, soon faded into the innocuous darkness. What the Sam? said the woman. Virgil guffawed, wiping the rain and tears from his cheeks. Hey, guys, maybe it's a sign. I just had a beer. Can't it be my lucky day? The woman shoved him back against the wall. Ain't no lucky days for booze bums, drone or not. We'll scan your manual. The Viking unclipped his magcuffs. Talker, give me your wrist, citizens. What you getting all wide-eyed about now? Virgil nervously inclined his head towards the open alley. A large black dog had appeared, materializing like an ominous smear out of the darkness. Raindrops beaded off the animal's coat as if it were a giant ebony swan. But it was no swan. It was a fearsome-looking Rottweiler. It stood a meter behind the agents and began to growl as they turned to face it. The growl rumbled off the brick walls. What, hell, Sky? said the woman. She unbuckled her 9 millimeter sidearm and pointed at the animal. Run along, puppy. Mama's gonna put a round in your brain pan. The dog flashed its teeth and took a bold step closer. Virgil wiped his eyes. He could have sworn he saw its claws turn to metal and dig into the asphalt. The woman chambered around and was preparing to fire when the Viking put a glove on her gun. No, no, wait, Sally. Don't shoot. Who's this guy? Virgil looked towards 8th Street. Silhouetted by the street lamps, a tall man in a cowboy hat strode smoothly towards them, head down, hands in pockets. His boot heels click-clicked, click-clicked, over the sound of the steadily falling rain. He stopped a few meters off and dropped his thumbs to his belt, keeping his face hidden under the brim of his hat. The dog didn't acknowledge the newcomer. The Viking spoke aggressively to the man. Mind your own business, citizen. Nothing to see here. Best pass on by. The man's dialect was baleful. Funny thing. What's funny, Dixie? hissed the woman, baring nicotine-yellowed teeth. The cowboy did not look up. Funny how you humdroids tell a man to mind his own business. 
Meanwhile, you're busy slinking about, chasing low-hanging fruit in dark alleys, like cowards years. People like Virgil here just want to be left alone, but you hummies gotta cross that line every time, don't you? This must be my contact, thought Virgil desperately. The Viking bowed up to an impressive stature and faced the cowboy, swinging his magcuffs. Interfering with St. Ed's a crime, Dixie, unless you want to try a pair of these on, too. The rodent-faced woman interjected, wrinkling her nose. What lines he mean, Joe? I mean this line, said the cowboy, dragging the tip of his boot across the asphalt. Virgil and the agents turned. There was a loud, simultaneous scraping sound as the dog drove its claws into the pavement, scouring out a divot twenty centimeters wide in front of them. Sweet sin, hissed the woman. Borg! Blinded by fear, she pointed her pistol at the dog's head and fired. A thunderclap obscured the bolt of the gunshot. Virgil recoiled in fright. The dog lunged, crushing the nine-millimeter Beretta and ripped the woman's hand off in a single bite. Before anyone could speak or scream, the animal spit up the mangled hand. Then it smashed the weapon into the wet asphalt beneath a hammer-like paw. Lastly, the dog coughed violently and spit up a flattened bullet. Shock fading, the woman now began wailing and fell back, blood jetting from the severed stump of her forearm. Virgil felt his knees go weak. The woman screamed and screamed, her cries muffled by the cacophony of the thunderstorm. The Viking agent delivered a huge, unexpected kick to the Rottweiler's jaw with a steel-toed boot that should have crushed the dog's face. Instead, the big CNED agent bellowed in pain himself and collapsed to one knee. The dog growled but remained still. The cowboy moved closer and took two shining silver capsules the size of multivitamins from his pocket. He raised the brim of his hat at last, holding one of the capsules in front of the man, blue eyes sparkling. Take this. What? The Viking sneered. Fuck you, Blackie! Virgil shivered anew as the Rottweiler lunged forward, snarling savagely at the Viking, the ferret-faced woman's blood still dripping from its ebony muzzle. Take the pill, repeated the cowboy calmly, stepping closer. Or this dog's gonna start removing body parts. The cowboy cocked his head, adding, Dixie. A stream of blood was washing away with the rain into the gutter as the woman swayed and cried. The Viking extended his hand and took the pill, swallowed and held both hands in the air. Okay, okay, don't let it hurt me. The cowboy looked at the man with disdain but did not speak. He walked to the woman, wasting no time, and grabbed her hair in a fist, holding her head back. As she cried, he forced the second capsule into her mouth and pushed her jaw shut until it was swallowed. Is it poison? asked the big agent, still cowering on his knees. The cowboy ignored the question, nodded quickly to the dog. Do it! Virgil screamed, pushing himself back against the wall. The Rottweiler moved in a blur of speed, pinning the female agent to the ground. Her forearm poured blood. The dog held the bloody stump to the asphalt. She screamed from the agony and fainted. Virgil wiped his eyes as he watched a cannon telescope out of the Rottweiler's throat. The laser light was fast and efficient, cauterizing the bloody stump into a smoldering slag of charcoal flesh in less than five seconds. Then the cannon was gone back inside the dog. The animal backed away as if nothing had happened. The Viking agent's lower lip was shaking uncontrollably. Please, oh great dog, don't kill us. I've got a wife from the Eastern Nation. She's pregnant, man. The cowboy remained silent. Those blue eyes flashed electric anger.
He leaned over and broke a smelling salts capsule under the female agent's nose. She came to and immediately began simpering with pain. The cowboy turned to the Viking. Pick up the gun and the hand, put them in your pockets. Say what? The big man began. The Rottweiler growled and pounded another paw. Okay, done. The Viking jumped to his boots and put the gun in a side pocket of his jumpsuit, then the hand. He pushed the broken fingers into his pocket with disgust. The cowboy nodded at the woman. Now get her the hell up. If you hurry, they can reattach it. The Viking jumped and helped the woman to her feet. She looked at the cowboy, wide awake but numbed with pain, gaunt cheeks looking bewildered as she dangled on her partner with her one good arm. The cowboy tipped his hat at the woman. That's the thing about lines, lassie. Eventually he crossed the wrong one. He faced the man. What are you waiting on, honey? Run on now. Virgil winced. The dog roared and again pounded its paws like sledgehammers denting the pavement. The woman screamed anew. The big agent picked her up like a child and hobbled, pathetically limping down the alley towards Ninth Street. Virgil watched for a few moments longer as the black dog gave a belated chase, steering them like sheep with quick nips and snarls through the shadows. Papa won't even believe me when I report this. Virgil let out what felt like the same breath he had been holding for the last two minutes. Holy sky, that was so fond, dude. You must be William. The cowboy turned, icy eyes filled with scorn. You're off to a great start, kid. That's right, I'm your contact. William grabbed Virgil's arm and dragged him in the opposite direction. Come on, you damn idiot. They made it back to the empty part of the alley facing the wall with the hand-painted CNET advertisement. Virgil jumped as the black dog suddenly rematerialized, skidding to a halt out of nowhere. The dog panted happily and smiled at William. Then it looked at Virgil and growled. William tapped the comm dot on his jaw. Secure and we're going to need the asphalt guys again. Virgil's mouth dropped open. The wet bricks in front of them began to flicker. An old wooden doorframe and staircase appeared in the side of the building. There were dry bricks on either side of the stairs and a purple curtain at the bottom. The dog immediately trotted through and was gone. William went down next and stopped after a couple of steps, looking over his shoulder as he shook the rain off his hat. You coming, or you want to do some more window shopping? Virgil jerked forward. I'm coming, I'm coming. Jeez. He stepped across the threshold. The wooden stair treads creaked. As the last hemp nylon fibers of his backpack passed the threshold, there was an immediate electrical snap. Goosebumps rose on his spine. Virgil turned. Behind him, the rainy alley was gone, replaced by a projected brick wall. From this side, it looked dusty and dry. William had already disappeared through the purple curtain after the dog. Naturally curious, Virgil reached to touch the holographic wall and was rewarded with a sturdy shock. Ouch! Virgil winced and clutched his fingers. Total silence enveloped him. The only sounds he could hear were the creaks of the stairs and the damp rustle of his own clothes. He took a deep breath and descended. Five steps down, directly in front of the purple curtains, he passed through a thin veil of electronic blue light pushed by a holoprojector on the wall. He touched the holographic curtain and felt his body pulled forward into the blue light as though it were a magnet. A blinding white flash made him close his eyes. After a few seconds, he fearfully peeked, found himself standing at the edge of a crowded, dimly lit basement barroom. The bar had low ceilings supported by wooden beams. So loud! The silence of the stairwell had been replaced by a cacophony of bright, intoxicated laughter and antique jazz being blasted by a holographic band. A dirty, captivating smell filled his nostrils. 
Where did my contacts in the Borg go? Virgil squinted across the tables of patrons as his eyes adjusted to the light. The band of life-size holographic jazz musicians was piled together on a squat stage in the far corner. The musicians wore purple suits the same shade as the curtains he had just walked through. A drummer, an upright bass guitar, and a large boxy instrument with keys. A piano, of course. He had seen pianos in the holoflicks. The musicians were sweating. Why would someone pay to project a sweating hologram? Virgil rubbed his eyes and looked closer. The musicians were real. He felt dizzy. Cocktail waitresses in burgundy red flapper dresses whizzed to and fro carrying trays of, there was no doubt, alcohol. Virgil briefly panicked. His eyes darted through the room, looking for microdrones, facial recognition lenses. Everyone was drinking. Oh, man, I'm in the speakeasy. Be cool, be cool. Oh, man, this is the commission of a lifetime right in downtown Lawrence. He nearly jumped out of his rain-soaked sneakers when a petite blonde waitress stopped in front of him. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Benedict, she said charismatically. Welcome to the Green Lady Lounge. Can I bring you a cocktail? She smiled, looking him up and down. Or a towel? Virgil blinked and looked down at his feet. How long had he been in the same spot? A puddle of rainwater had gathered around his sneakers while he stood there with his mouth hanging open. He tried to speak, but the only sound that came out was, I, uh, I, uh... The waitress raised her eyebrows, then signaled to a muscular Asian man behind a long wooden bar to Virgil's right, who was wearing a wife-beater and red suspenders. Yo, Leo, throw me a towel. We got a virgin. Leo, the bartender, stood in front of a large mirrored display of vintage liquor bottles. He examined Virgil with obvious displeasure. He tweaked one end of his mustache, then tossed the waitress a bar towel and sauntered away to help another patron. The adorable waitress hung the towel over Virgil's shoulder. Here you go, honey. Since you're not talking for the moment, take this. She grabbed a drink off another server's tray and pressed the glass of cool, clear liquid into his right hand. The waitress laughed easily. <laughs> there you go. Now you look like you belong somewhere. Virgil looked into the girl's violet eyes, unsure if he had ever met a woman so pretty. You know my name. I sure do. And you see that red velvet curtain past the bar? She pointed across the room. Uh-huh. If you'll be a doll and walk around that corner, you'll find a seat in the private alcove that belongs to you. I will. Mr. Angevine is waiting. I just... he, he is? Virgil smiled nervously. He took a drink and grimaced, alarmed by the liquor's bite. W wow Okay. That's not water. The waitress pursed her lips congenially and began to walk away. Wait, he said. Did you happen to see a big black dog come in here? She looked over her shoulder and giggled, widening her eyes. Why, no, Virgil, a dog? That would violate public health codes. Virgil felt foolish. Don't be an idiot. You've seen speakeasies in the Holoflex. Holy sky, I'm in a speakeasy. Too bad I have to report this place. His awe was quickly replaced by excitement as he shuffled past the bar. Though the conversations of other patrons were many and loud, it was difficult to hear exactly what anyone was saying. Sound wave diffractors lined the low ceiling for this very reason. People at the tables kept to themselves, and eye contact, if made at all, was fleeting. Before he could get around the corner and through the curtain, the same blonde waitress returned and snatched the bar towel off his shoulder, proceeding to dab his face and brush his dark, wet hair from his eyes. These towel things are even more effective for drying off when you actually use them, Virgil. That's better. 
she sang, disappearing as quickly as she'd come. Virgil took a deep breath and pushed through the curtains. He froze. On the curtain's far side was a small room, with a single table set at the back of a large alcove, which had been cut into the foundation. The room's light was barely brighter. The table was ringed by a large, semicircular booth, upholstered in the same red vinyl as the rest of the chairs throughout the speakeasy. It was very... what did they call it? Retro. Man, I am going to make a fond commission on this place. On one wall, a 2D flat-screen display showed the band of musicians in the main room. The stereo comm relayed the sound of their instruments perfectly. The enormous black dog from the alley lay on the polished concrete floor before the booth. The animal's head was proudly erect. It panted happily, and there was no sign it had recently taken a bullet to the skull or ripped a woman's hand off. I'm going insane. The only person he recognized was William from the alley. The man had removed his cowboy hat and jacket, and seemed relatively dry for having just been in a thunderstorm. Only his sandy blonde hair was wet, matted back. He eyed Virgil with a cool expression. Beside William sat an extremely appropriate-looking man in a tuxedo. Is that a tuxedo, or just a tan suit? Everything about the man was immaculate, from his copper-red hair to the chocolate-colored handkerchief poking neatly out of the breast pocket of his jacket. The man wore green, wire-rimmed sunglasses and sat at the far edge of the booth. He bore no outward expression, proud and quiet as a statue. Adjacent to the well-dressed man was a dude of Latino descent. From the Mexican states, thought Virgil. He was casually leaned back with an antique joint smoldering steadily in the corner of his mouth. His heavily muscled forearms were sleeved with tattoos, hearts and anchors and sparrows and roses and pyramids and bizarre machines. The man sported a bushy, jet-black mustache and wore camouflage pants with lace-up combat boots. His slouched appearance stood in stark contrast to the clean-cut gentleman to his left. Lastly, sitting cross-legged on top of the table itself, was an African dwarf with a white kitten clinging to his shoulder. The little man had a bionic arm with a wrench where his hand should have been, and a patch over one eye. His expression was grim and unchanging. I'm totally going insane. The dwarf was dressed in gray, pinstriped overalls that had obviously seen their fair share of toil, and sported a fluffy, volleyball-sized afro, sprinkled with points of gray. He quenched a mug of brown beer with his wrench. The mug looked enormous in front of his tiny body. The little man showed no emotion, though the kitten hissed at Virgil steadily. No one spoke. Virgil became self-conscious, sopping wet in his combed khaki pants with a collegiate backpack slouched over his shoulder. His lower lip was shaking, along with his right hand, which held the short glass of vodka. There's no way to make this look good. He took a step towards the table, and the black dog immediately bore its teeth. Virgil lurched, dropped his rocks glass, shattering it on the cement floor. The tattooed Mexican burst out laughing, and the dour mood was suddenly transformed. With the exception of the dwarf and William, everyone in the alcove smiled. William shook his head, slid out, and whistled through the curtain. The blonde cocktail waitress quickly appeared with a broom and began sweeping up the shattered glass. Thank you, Daphne. No problem, Mr. Angevine. The cowboy's voice was drawled, like he came from somewhere down south where there were swamps. I've told you to call me William, or anything you want for that matter, darling, he said with a wink. The waitress puffed her chest defiantly. And I've told you that ring on your finger means you are married, Mr. Angevine. The waitress spun on her heel and sashayed back into the barroom in a flash of ruby-perfumed curves. 
William turned to Virgil and shrugged, then grabbed his limp hand and shook it. Welcome to the dry side of the world, squire. Virgil didn't even care that his mouth was hanging open and began babbling. Oh, my dog, are we seriously going to pretend that didn't just happen outside? That CNED lady shot your Fido in the face, but here it is, five minutes later, totally operational, lying on the floor of a speakeasy. You guys pinged me. Almost got me arrested. I deserve an explanation. The Mexican man in the booth chuckled at William as he puffed his joint. Yeah, mister? You ain't gonna give him an explanation, man? The well-dressed man observed in silence as William closed his hand around Virgil's neck and shoved him against the wall. You deserve nothing, and it's only by the grace of the dog that you get to set foot in this bar. Show some respect. William released his grip. Virgil gasped, rubbing his neck. Geez, sorry, aggro much? William inclined his head at the dog. You want to see aggro, squire? The Rottweiler raised its head and gave Virgil a warning snarl. Jesus, okay, no, I said I'm sorry. William grabbed the boy's shoulder roughly and turned him to face the well-dressed man. What do you say, boss? I vote you scramble his brains and let me toss him back. Everyone in the booth kept quiet. The white kitten turned its back and the dwarf took an emotionless sip of beer. The well-dressed man maintained his taciturn expression. At last, he lowered his sunglasses slightly, revealing piercing yellow eyes. Oh no, I believe he'll do just fine. The man smiled blithely, extracted a black vapor joint from his coat pocket, and took a smooth, luxurious puff. William turned to Virgil. Well, there you go, squire. Now stop being a sally and go pet that dog. Virgil let out a shuddering breath. Okay, okay. He reached his hand out and took a step forward. The dog lunged viciously and Virgil jumped backward, squealing. No! This time everyone laughed except the black dwarf, who simply took another swallow of beer. The blonde waitress reappeared on cue. She handed Virgil a replacement glass of vodka. Here you go, pumpkin. Thanks. Virgil muttered, still eyeing the dog. You bet. She winked. And don't worry, sunshine. You're in the basement. The only direction from here is up. Thanks, I don't even... He started to say, following the waitress with his eyes as she briskly disappeared back through the velvet curtain. Virgil? William snapped his fingers. Over here, kid. Virgil turned around and William pointed to the Mexican lounging in the booth. This is Hugo. Hola, tanto, said Hugo, nodding and exhaling a cumulonimbus cloud of ganja smoke. Hello, said Virgil awkwardly. This is Garan and Cat, continued William, nodding at the dwarf and his felix. Hello. The black dwarf's expression remained fixed and grumpy, but the kitten jumped onto the table, putting one paw in the air and uttered a single meow, then bounded back up onto the dwarf's shoulders. Last but not least, this is Mr. Dax Abner, said William. Hello, Mr. Sir, said Virgil. I'm sorry I broke the glass. I just... Dax interrupted him with a glance, swirling his vapor joint in a lazy circle. Don't be sorry yet, Virgil. You have plenty of time for that. William? Boss? Before we were so amusingly interrupted, you were about to say... William took a pull off his vodka and said, Just that I got the nano tablets down their gullets. The big one gave me a little pushback, but they both swallowed them. Excellent. Nothing like an instantly digested engrammatic disruptor to help a CNED agent forget the last 24 hours of their life. William smiled wryly. After Joan rewrites their comm trails, those two are going to have a mighty tough time explaining to Director Sappet what happened. 
Indeed. Good work. Now, he gestured towards the curtain. What say you and the boys go belly up at Leo's bar for ten minutes? That should give Mr. Benedict and I time to get acquainted. Are you guys talking about those agents in the alley? interjected Virgil excitedly. Oh, man, that was so fond. How did you... Shut up, Virgil, said William. He whistled at the booth. Dog, boys, let's go do a few shots. Hugo slid out of the booth, joint between his lips, and grabbed up Garan as he did, dropping the little man to the floor. Cat hissed at Siegfried as the dog bounded up, and they all followed William through the curtain and were gone. Virgil turned to face Dax Abner, the room suddenly seeming expansive and oddly quiet despite the jazz being streamed over the comm. Dax gestured to the booth. Why don't you put that backpack down and have a seat, my studious young friend? Virgil sauntered over and took the opposite end of the booth, grateful to have the weight off his back. Dax sat with perfect posture, one leg crossed over the other, and gazed at him calmly through his green lens glasses. Virgil was about to start feeling uncomfortable again when Dax said, Do you know why you're here, Mr. Benedict? To score the biggest CNED commission ever, thought Virgil. Well, my contact, I mean William, he said that you needed someone to spy on CNED around campus, that you'd pay some top digis for info on what the humdroids are doing, who's busting who. That is correct. You're an English literature major, I understand. Yes, said Virgil, wiping his hair back. Poetry specifically. I graduate this spring. How thrilling. I'll have you recite something before you depart this evening. I'd love that. No one appreciates the spoken word anymore. Virgil took another sip from his rocks glass, wincing. Whew, this has a bite. So you own this place? I do. I should have brought a hollow recorder. Just stay cool, ping Bubba, as soon as you're out. Pretty fun, Mr. Abner. Hey! Virgil's eyes lit up. You own that Abner pumpkin patch, right? I do. Wow, my mom floats up from Olathe and gets her Thanksgiving decorations there. How light. That's a sweet cover you got. Dax took a sip of his soda water, then rested his chin in one hand, eyeing the young man. Indeed. So tell me, Virgil, what is it that makes a young poet such as yourself want to risk getting involved in the alcohol trade? Oh, I'm technically not a poet, said Virgil. I just study poetry. I want to be a professor. Keep the written word relevant. Good luck with that. I can still read you one. I came here straight from campus and have all my books. Do you want to hear a poem now? I've got this guy wrapped around my finger. I should be a spy, thought Virgil. The faintest hint of a smile turned the edge of Dax's mouth. Oh, no. You should wait until the gentlemen return. I'm sure they'd just be delighted to hear a rousing recitation. Really? asked Virgil quizzically. Oh, I'm sure of it. We love the arts. But you were going to tell me the alcohol business? You want to be involved. Why? Well, Virgil shrugged, the money's pretty fond, right? I mean, William already transferred more digis into my account just for meeting you guys than I've made all semester working at the library. I'm gonna make like a hundred times that much when I tell Bubba there's a giant speakeasy right off Massachusetts Street, he thought. Dax was unmoved. And? Well, it's also because of my girlfriend, Adrian. She got busted, see? By CNED? No, 
The cops. She picked up a trunk full of shine from Smokey Mark. He's a booze dealer on campus, said Virgil eagerly. She was floating back to her sorority house, going to a party, and got stopped by a drone for buzzing a red light. I don't know why she didn't have the huff car on auto. I see. So anyway, one of the masons wasn't sealed right. It spilled in her trunk, flipped the alcovabe, cops came, cuffed her, sent her straight to BMOD. She was able to holoconference her classes from the hospital, but she owes them like a million digibucks even now. It's wrong, you know. Adrian's going to be paying off her hospital debt for like a thousand years. So yeah, I guess I want to support the resistance. Virgil held his fingers up, making quotation marks. Fight the architect, like they say. Dax picked up his vapor joint and took a drag. You're going to fight the architect, eh? By ratting on undercover CNED agents posing as students at the University of Kansas. Totally. There are rats on campus, too. That's what it's all about, right? Having a speakeasy. You, like, fight the power. I can't believe this guy's a local drug kingpin. He's not very intuitive. What if, Dax asked, instead of being about the morality of alcohol use, the architect's motive was really controlling society itself? I don't get it, said Virgil. Vision is about harmonious drug use, the environment. It's what ended the old war on drugs. Vision is kind of genius, really, if you think about it. Dax pursed his lips. Genius, yes. There's quite a surplus of that going around. What I'm asking, Mr. Benedict, is what you would do to combat the architect if, in fact, his motive was shifting the very mindset of North American culture. Dax spun the black rodeo drive vapor joint in his fingers. To make people more passive, more malleable, open to government suggestion. What if he wants to control morality itself? What if alcohol prohibition is just a convenient means to that end? This guy is a whack job, thought Virgil. I want to see his slick face when like 50 CNET agents bust through his little hologram curtain. Virgil could feel his knee bouncing uncontrollably under the table. You think the architect is really trying to like mind meld people? By what? Making everyone believe it's their own idea to think booze is evil? When it's really just his? Something like that, said Dax through his teeth, letting a tight smile compose his features. Virgil stuck his lower lip out. Well, so what if he's right? I mean, maybe there's a good reason alcohol is illegal. It's a proven gateway drug. I knew this one kid in high school who got so drunk that Oh, for dog's sake, said Dax firmly, rolling his eyes. I've heard quite enough. He removed his tinted sunglasses and set them on the table. Enough of what? asked Virgil, sipping his vodka and peering over the rim of his glass at this man's exposed yellow eyes. Put that glass down, said Dax. Virgil found that he couldn't look away. His body was frozen, except for the hand that had just lowered the glass to the tabletop. A warm, intoxicating feeling flooded down his spine, like taking ten plesium at once. He felt high and lucid. His knee stopped bouncing. All that mattered was the beautiful man sitting across the table from him. Okay, he managed to say, grinning foolishly. Dax leaned back and engaged his vapor joint with newfound glee as he spoke. Virgil Benedict, repeat after me. I am a wretched, sodding cunt of a human being. Virgil responded immediately. 
I am a wretched, sodding cunt of a human being. A micro-drone the size of a ping-pong ball emerged from the wall by Dax's head and floated over until it was in front of Virgil. A red light on the drone's belly turned green, indicating that a hollow recording had started. Very good, said Dax, as his jet-black pupils dilated further, crushing away the tiger yellow. Now that it's on the record for all to see, look at the drone and, on my command, repeat the following. Citizens of Lawrence, my name is Virgil Benedict. I am a senid snitch. I am a gormless knob of a young man, bloody useless, really. Virgil felt a stab of fear rise as Dax went on, but he was unable to move, only listened to the mesmerizing voice, saying, Furthermore, I apologize sincerely to those Jayhawks among you who have been forced to experience behavioral modification as a result of my epic lack of testicles. Lastly, to CNED Special Agent Bubba Sparks, I would especially like to say, go toss yourself, you blubbering heap of rat's vomit. I now work for the other side. And Bob's my uncle. Virgil was sitting straight up, a tear in the corner of his eye. There was no warm, fuzzy sensation. The fear was now all-consuming. He could form no thoughts, only sense the grave horror of realizing this man heard every thought he had. His teeth were chattering. His knee had begun bouncing spasmodically. Dax leaned forward on his elbows and squinted, slowly making the boy twist his head at the same angle as his own, like a marionette. It's not much fun, is it? The terror of knowing that you are no longer in control. Dax clenched his teeth. Knowing that you have no privacy, that every single thought you have is the property of someone else. He slammed his fist on the table and yelled furiously, Answer me, slave! Yes, sputtered Virgil, saliva burbling over his lower lip, one eye going bloodshot. Please, he managed. It hurts. You're hurting me. I'm sorry. Bloody fucking right, said Dax as he leaned back and regained his composure, again puffing the vapor joint. With the flick of a wrist, he added, All right, Virgil, your fear is gone. Clean that tear from your eye. You feel fine. Stop being such a sally. Virgil fell back into the booth, wiping his face and relaxing into a smile as once more the warm, comfortable feeling consumed him. He knew he had just been afraid, but he could not remember why. There's no need for the drone, Dax said. The drone's belly lights extinguished and it hovered back into its camouflage wall port and disappeared as he continued. I'm not going to throw you to the wolves just yet. Are you paying attention, Virgil? Yes. Good. Dax's pupils again enlarged, though his voice remained calm and polite. Forget Bubba Sparks and CNED. You hate the Community Narcotics Enforcement Division, in fact. Your new permanent contact is an AI named Joan. You will contact her at the IPv7 just ping to your combud. You will report any undercover CNED activity you observe to Joan on a weekly basis, and you'll do it with a damned smile. Yes. Yes what? Yes, sir. That's a chap. Next. What do you remember from being in the alley right before you came into this bar? I got stopped by CNED, 
The Fido appeared with William, and they shot it. It bit the lady's hand off. Then it pinned her to the ground, and a laser gun came out of its mouth, and it burned the lady's arm to stop the bleeding, said Virgil with the comfort of someone ordering lunch. Dax cocked his head. You, my friend, just forgot all of that. The truth is, you don't know how you got into this speakeasy. The last thing you remember is walking down the alley. It was raining. It was hard to see. Now, what did I just say? About what? asked Virgil innocently, his eyes lit up like a kid on Festivus morning. I really like this vodka, Mr. Abner. I'm going to do this job right. I hear a lot of word about CNED narcs on the underground chat streams with the students around the library. I'll be able to get Joan some decent intel for sure. I'd like to add, sir, he said with a genuine, broad smile, that I really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of your war to destroy the architect. Just then, Daphne, the adorable waitress, brushed bum first through the curtain, carrying fresh glasses of soda water and vodka. Virgil didn't understand why, but sitting with Dax Abner made him even more captivated by the motion of the girl's body. Daphne, can I read you a poem? He jabbered as she set the drinks down. Dax gave the waitress a barely noticeable nod. She looked at Virgil. Are you sure reading me a poem is really what you want to do? Virgil swooned. Oh, yes, absolutely. I've got the perfect one in my head right now. Daphne brightened her eyes. I bet you do. Tell you what, pretty, I get off at three o'clock. Why don't you just take me out in the docking lot after my shift and throw me up on the hood of your Chevy? At the end of the day, a girl likes some good, cheap sex with a complete stranger better than a poem, don't you know? She said with an exaggerated wink. Virgil blushed and was only able to respond with a series of jumbled squeaks. Daphne shot Dax a smile before sashaying off. Good luck, Mr. Abner. This must be one special snowflake. Dax replied softly. You have no idea. Virgil sighed as Daphne disappeared. She's so beautiful. Yes, quite. Dax rapped his knuckles sharply on the wooden table. Focus, Mr. Benedict. You had just finished saying all the right things. He picked up his soda water affably. Let's toast, Virgil, to a prosperous future. Cheers, Mr. Abner. This is so fond. Hey, here come the guys. Siegfried pushed back through the velvet curtain, followed by Garan and Cat, Hugo, and lastly William, who even sans the cowboy hat had to stoop slightly under one of the lower ceiling joists. As everyone slid into the booth, Dax said, Gentlemen, I'm certainly glad I didn't have to spend ten minutes like that with any of you. You fellows conveniently came without the stupid. Nonetheless, young Virgil here is now fully of a mind, I believe. That's right, Mr. Angevine, sir, said Virgil abulently, leaning so close to William that he had to back away. I apologize for my behavior earlier. William turned to Dax as though Virgil had a feculent odor. Will you stay like this? Unfortunately, not. Within a few hours, he'll return to being the same sniveling little shit he's always been, albeit with a few improvements. He works for us now, and remembers nothing of his associations with CNED. He's totally harmless. You guys, I'm sitting right here, said Virgil plaintively. What associations with CNED? Dax turned his head. Forget the last twenty seconds of your life. He put his green sunglasses back on. And now, Virgil, why don't you do something useful as promised? 
Read us a poem. William slapped his knee. Hugo chuckled. Dax held up a finger, silently asking for pause. Only Cat seemed to mule in support of the spoken word. Garan, however, stared with one radiant, blue-gray eye, looking at Virgil like he would just as soon burn him alive as listen to him read poetry. The little dwarf's wrench opened and closed as he watched the boy. "'You guys really want me to read? Because I will!' exclaimed Virgil, sitting up and pulling his backpack into his lap. "'Yes, we want you to recite a poem,' said Dax slyly. I believe I hear a few rattling around up there, don't I? An early century contemporary piece of some feather will do nicely. Virgil said, All right, happily, and leaned to unzip his backpack. Dax stopped him. No, Virgil, something from memory. Even through the tinted lenses of the sunglasses, Virgil felt as though the man's eyes might blow holes in his mind. Yes, sir. I only know a few by memory. Um... He looked around his skull. Then got it. Okay. How's about one by a famous dead Kansas poet? You ever heard of Jason Reberg? Hugo raised his hand. Ooh, Iredine, dog. He's like the last poet that ever was or something. The last American poet to make money writing, you mean? Clarified Virgil happily. And not die a homeless alcoholic, added Dax. Virgil said, well, actually, he did die a homeless alcoholic, but... Hugo took another drag off a freshly lit joint. Whatever, dog, say the sheet. Virgil closed his eyes and spoke in a voice so smooth and steady that it surprised everyone. Cat jumped down to the tabletop and sat between Garan's legs beside his mug of beer. Even Siegfried raised his head off the floor and focused as Virgil began. This is called A Storm is Coming. There's a blanket of black wool that's been pulled over the city, over this little nameless hole in the prairie. There's squadrons of ornery flies buzzing about and stinging and the faded ringing reports of car horns here and there. There's pages of splayed open books on auto repair and common Missouri wildflowers whipping and flipping in a nervous Missouri wind. There's cats and dogs conspicuously ducking for cover and birds taking the last bus out of town. There's a heavy, incandescent density to things, like the boiler rooms of all the world are just about to blow, and everybody, everywhere, secretly seems to know it. And even though it's only 4 p.m., the only light to speak of is the ghosted-out fluorescent resin of oxide lamps just now ghosting in. And over across town, on the far side of the train yards, right next door to Big Maybell's Beauty Emporium, there's two old boys sitting on the front porch of a boarding house, hooting at all the sweet young things as they come and go, sipping on their whiskey drinks real, real slow and sweetly calibrated synchronization with the melting of the ice cubes. Their bones are ancient humming architectures of radio towers and tuning forks. Their pop-bottle bifocals peer deep into the future. One of them leans over a little and says to the other, Storm a-comin'. Yep. Virgil opened his eyes carefully. Everyone at the table was silent, looking at him, waiting, as if no one had heard such a thing before. Garan the dwarf remained stone-faced. It was Cat the kitten who finally broke the silence. She turned her tiny butthole in Virgil's direction and released a kitten fart. Dax grinned and turned to William, knocking his glass on the table. So, there you have it, you see. He's not entirely worthless. 
William paused, staring into his vodka, then looked up and asked Virgil grimly, Why poetry, squire? Virgil beamed. Well, it's really literary history, but mostly because chicks dig it. You went to poetry college to meet Bettys. It worked, said Virgil, shrugging as if the answer should be obvious. I did not understand she, he said, little man, interjected Hugo, gladly raising his glass. But I drink any time, you know that. So cheers to the poems, the Bettys, Mangs, yeah? The glasses had just hit everyone's lips when Siegfried sprang to his paws. Hackles raised down the ridge of his spine. The cyborg looked directly at William. A second later, the microdrone burst from the wall, flashing red. Dax put his hand to his conbud. His expression soured. William was first out of the booth, standing so he could look at his holotab, reading the scrolling text as he hurriedly pulled the silver com dot from his jeans and reaffixed it to his jaw. He wiped his eyes, looked at Dax. Tell me this is some kind of drill. Dax shook his head calmly. Negative. We are going to have to conclude these revelries early. Conclude? Who's got to conclude? Asked Hugo. We're just getting your swerve on, Mings. Dax slid to his feet, yellow eyes filling with apprehension. He leapt across the table with cat-like agility. On our way, Joan. Dax smiled tightly at Virgil, who was the only one still sitting. Mr. Benedict, we must depart. Daphne or Leo will scan you out. He turned abruptly to Garan, Hugo, and William. The ladies are in trouble, gentlemen. We must float like the very wind. Hugo's inebriated ears still didn't want to hear as much. What's a what, Miss Dean get her sweater caught in the sonic dryer again? Dax rounded on Hugo with a gaze that made him shrivel. Oh, I know, Hugo. In fact, she's not having trouble with the laundry. The situation is slightly more dire. Coyote One is sitting on the lawn behind the farmhouse. Police headquarters. Fourteen months earlier. Two years. Nine months before event. That news perplexes me, Kenneth. Rape is a serious allegation to make disappear. My apologies. Won't happen again. Howard got excited. Slopes laced his fingers together. Very well. See that he is more discreet in the future. I will, sir. At the moment, I'm less concerned about your team's abuse of power than I am with the furnishing of your agents into thin air. The smells of murder. The voice on the other end of the stream plucked up. How do you think we feel, sir? Jenks was a patriot, a hell of a hunter. Fellow was a regular down at First City Unitarian and could shoot the wings off a camadrone at... Yes, 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 I get it. He was a real class act. Chief Narcotics Detective Dennis Slopes began coughing uncontrollably in his office. The rickety man had popped a hemp truffle into his mouth and was gasping as the dessert piece fought with his lungs for throat space. Sir? Slopes' body rattled violently as he coughed again, chocolate dribble running down his chin. Don't <coughs> stop it! He tapped his combud and squeaked. <coughs> Julie! An anxious girl's voice answered. Yes, Detective Slopes? No more protein truffles with nougat. I don't want you to buy any more nougat truffles. I nearly choked to death. You don't want a lawsuit on your hands, do you? The girl's voice on the other end of the comm sniffled. 
No, sir, I'm sorry. It's, as I said, they were temporarily out of pure chocolate, so... No excuses! That will be all, he said snippily. Subordinates were like unwanted children. He returned abruptly to his conversation with CNED director Ken Sappet. You there, Kenneth? I'm here, sir. Okay, where were we? Agent Jink's wife told us that he and Tram were planning to hunt outside city limits along the river. They were inserting at Oak Hill Cemetery. A foolish decision. Yes, sir, growled Sappet miserably. Meow, meow, I'm a cow, Slopes mumbled, thinking. Excuse me? Nothing is nothing, Slopes knitted his fingers. All right. His wife said he was going east. So tell me again how this hubfrack just up and floated across the city by itself, putting the last dock on the opposite side of the county? We don't know. The truck's calm confirms the autonav course was input by Jinx himself. The tracking data from his combat is scrambled. It's strange. What IT was able to salvage indicates he followed a westward trajectory the whole time. It's the same situation this is, uh... He brought his fist to his mouth and coughed again violently. <laughs> Damn! This nougat! Philip Tram. That's right. So, Agent Tram's combat says he's following Avrod 1500 east, according to one ping. And five seconds later, he's disappeared 13 kilometers north upriver? Yes, sir, said Saffet, anger bubbling beneath his words. What of the other eight operatives you sent out? No data. Dennis Slope's palms began to sweat. So, you have ten proven senates leaving on a hunt. Eight return with nothing, no clear triggers, no grid fluctuations, no unregistered veils, not even a solar steel in the back of someone's closet? That is correct, sir. But if I could, our real priority here should be our missing operatives, their families... Slopes interrupted. Yes, yes, and two unofficially reporting they were going to search Quadrant A, vanish entirely. Then, the next GPS ping puts one by the lake across county and another up a river near Lecompton. Yes, sir. The data is real. We verified it with our source at Garmin, as well as the Federal Citizen GPS archive. That's the way it happened. But, uh, to maintain division honor, we should... Slope squeezed his fingers into a bony fist and popped the top of his desk. Ken, you're the highest-ranking CNED citizen. You're respected. That's it. Slope snapped his fingers, his tone becoming perverse. Tell the families that the Lord's Police Department and CNED are terribly sorry for their loss, that we're cooperating with local and federal officials to help them find the missing loved ones that their service to CNED has been invaluable, yada yada, give them 10,000 digits apiece, and a free round-trip subspace anywhere on Terra. More questions? Ken Sappet's voice was thin and dry. No, sir. Thank you, then. That will be all, chimed Slopes. He tapped his combud and cut the stream. This is all just distressing. Distressing, distressing.
he mumbled, drifting in consideration. He had a thought and tapped his combat eagerly. Mrs. Caters, where are you? I need to hear you meow. Swope swiped his holotab and remote activated the holoscreen in his apartment living room. The room was dark, with towels and old sheets serving as curtains to obscure most shreds of natural light coming through the windows. His beloved synth-leather holovision couch was empty, littered with a few errant candy wrappers and his favorite snuggle blanket. Slopes clicked his fingers impatiently, then exclaimed, Oh, thanks, dog! When a silky Burmese Felix sprang onto the couch and rolled over, exposing her downy chocolate belly. Mrs. Keaters, I was worried. Where have you been snuggled to your solar charge, I bet? The small feline cyborg rolled to its paws and began parading back and forth on the couch, occasionally flashing its orange eyes flirtatiously at the hollow screen. Now, meow for me, said Slopes, licking his lips. Meow like a good girl. The Felix stopped and faced the holocam and vocalized in long, luxuriant, Meow. Slopes gleamed with pride. That's my little chestnut queen. The overhead office comm chimed and a male voice said plainly, Analysis complete. Slopes blanched and reached a finger to caress the hollow screen. What calls Mrs. Keaters? Daddy has to work so he can come home and put you on his lap. Be a good Keaters. I'll touch you soon. Do you want to touch me too? The brown Felix mewled with melancholy desire. Oh, I can just feel your fur. Very soon, Mrs. Keaters. Very soon we'll be together again. He tapped his combud and collapsed the private stream. His eyes jolted to the unused pieces littering the puzzle desk before him, and his nose curled with distaste. This Montana landscape puzzle he had been working on so purposefully was more difficult than anticipated. He rocked his head back and forth and said, Meow, meow, I'm a cow, don't peek yet, just be here now, Simon. The computer answered after several seconds. Yes, Detective Slopes. Why did you take so long to answer? You recently gave me the moniker Simon, sir. I was unsure if you were addressing me directly or simply talking out loud. Slopes turned red. Why would I say Simon if I wasn't talking to you? Simon is a common name. My apologies. Simon, you're a very stupid computer. Yes, sir, said the calm. You said analysis was complete. So, do the hunters have track courses take them through any part of the city with standard FR cameras installed? Past traffic lights? Yes, Detective Slopes. Both CNED agents would have been required to pass numerous facial recognition cameras on their course between the documented GPS tags. How many FR ticks do we have logged on their combuds along that course, Simon? I'm betting none, Simon. I'm betting our little prostitute is in fact to the east. The computer hesitated. After a few seconds, the voice replied soberly. No facial recognition ticks were registered along that route, Detective Slopes. Hovercraft IPV7s only. Yeah, The old man can't complain now. Ha <laughs> ha! He pounded his fist on the surface of the puzzle desk, causing several loose pieces to scatter to the floor. No! 
He exclaimed with alarm and nearly fell forward, fingers desperately rummaging for the hempboard puzzle pieces. He gathered them one at a time, stacking the pieces in one hand like poker chips. His lips shook, and a sheen of sweat glistened across his brow by the time he'd finished. One by one, he placed the pieces back on the desk with the others. Slope's mouth-breathing was fast and uneven, eyes darting nervously for any pieces he might have missed. "'There you go, babies,' he managed. "'There you go. Daddy's so sorry. He'll never let you get lost again.' That's a promise. Daddy's so sorry. Meow, meow. I'm a cow. Detective Slopes, said the calm. Yes, Simon. You have an incoming encrypted holoconference from the office of the architect. Dennis Slopes closed his eyes and swallowed, immediately forgetting the puzzle. The day after the rainstorm. Tara Dean rolled her eyes with an unusual amount of verve, even for her. She brought her chin to rest on one hand and leaned an elbow against the glass edge of the holodesk. In front of her was a life-size projection of Coyote One. The hologram looked organic towards the rear, then cut away through meticulously detailed layers of bioskin all the way down to the titanolume skeletal chassis. By the time one's eyes made it midway up the holographic body, the metal ribcage and other physio-mechanical components of the cyborg structure were represented by transparent blue lines akin to an engineering blueprint. The tangerine-sized fusion core glowed a deep blue at the center of the ribcage. Directly below the structural matrix of the core's levitation chamber was the graphene diamond motherboard, which contoured perfectly around the coyote's interior architecture. The dated quantum processor at the tip of the motherboard glowed the same blue color as the fusion core, receiving three pulses of wireless energy per second. Hundreds of fiber-optic cables radiated outward from the heat sink linking the cyborg's various control systems, sensors, and nanomotors. The fiber-optic cables began as pencil-thick trunk lines, leading eventually to the extremities like a biological cardiovascular system. Dax and Williams stood on the opposite side of the holographic projection. From where Tara sat, it looked as if the fiddle player in the Thomas Hart Benton painting behind them was being consulted on the hologram as well. Dax pointed. See this line? It's a behavioral cortex feed, the same as in our dog's units. Low bandwidth, but phenomenal for its time. The coyotes can perceive person-to-person variants based on EM field fluctuations, just like Siegfried. Dax reached down and petted Siegfried absentmindedly. The big Rottweiler sat dutifully between him and William, as though studying the hologram himself. Dax Abner looked over his shoulder towards Joan, floating peacefully in her habitat. You're absolutely certain the calm is working on this unit, the other six? Despite her monotone voice, one could almost hear the disdain in the dolphin's response. Doxon Julius Abner, that is the thirteenth time you have leveled this specific query. This, despite my extensive report on coyote schematics provided this morning. Following their BIOS update, these seven cybernetic organisms are functioning perfectly given their archaic components. Com relay included. I can hear basic communications from the units. Fear, mistrust, warning, safe, calm, attack, flee, etc., I can push them rudimentary messages as well. However, that is it. 
a contemporary verbal to binary encoding processor similar to those found in the dogs units does not exist, any attempt to further modify their code will result in a core implosion. These seven remaining units are unlike modern cyborgs. Their nascent version of the Adler code is absolutely unique. Tara pulled Dax's focus, irritating him because he was unable to resist her telepathic call. So there you have it, love. Even Jones pissed were tired totally over you guys standing around asking the same questions for two days. It's a shame that you can't hack the coyotes. It just is what it is. Can we please let them go? Dax frowned. Darling, I literally feel your distress. However, I agree with William. Setting them free without some guarantee of control? Unwise. They did attack you initially. And let's not forget, said William, murder your father and his entire staff at Darkpool. Tara stood and glared at the men. They were desperate, she said emphatically. They don't know why they did that. They don't remember Darkpool. How do you know they don't remember? Asked Dax incredulously. Because they just don't. Maybe Joan can't, but I can hear their thoughts. They're remorseful when you discuss it. They've been waiting years to find me. Living in ditches, chased, shot at, run over by hub trucks, unable to communicate with the outside world. They freaked out one time. No one knows why. William said, Tara, they pushed your hub car off the road. There was no guarantee they were just going to nicely ask for a blood sample and then prance away in the moonlight. They tore loafing to shreds. You attacked them. To protect you, my sweet, Dax interjected. Well, maybe I didn't need protecting. William dropped his thumbs to his belt. You were doing a bang-up job of escaping from Greystone on your own. Tara extended her middle finger and raised her chin defiantly. Blow me, William. She looked at the ceiling and spoke. Dory, babe, you hearing this in the yard? Loud and clear, came Dorothy's voice. Can you please tell your husband to stop being an asshole and tell my boyfriend to stop being a control freak? Dax and William glanced at each other with resignation. Dorothy replied matter-of-factly. Honey, quit being an asshole. Dax, boss, I think you gotta let this go. The coyotes are just wild. Their programming is fixed, if I understand what Joan's saying. This is why I'm up here enjoying the sunshine. The conversation's over. You got three options, boys. Kill them, use our resources to imprison them, or set them free and see what happens. Has Joan ever been wrong before, Joan? The dolphin's response was instantaneous. I do not do wrong. William rubbed his eyes with frustration and walked halfway around the curved glass wall of Joan's habitat. As if citizen mercenaries weren't enough, let's throw seven freaking feral cyborgs in the mix. Tara whistled after him. Ah, oh, what's wrong, hunts with gunpowder? You don't like them because they don't talk to you? Or tether? Or whatever the stupid Roddies do? They aren't gonna hurt us. I know it. If you don't mind elaborating, how precisely do you know that, darling? Asked Dax pointedly. Tara grabbed a fistful of her own black hair and pretended to yank it out in great pain. Well, I don't know, boss. She turned to William. William, how do you know when your little puppies here want something, huh? Because I just know. Exactly. I just know. Why can't you trust me? I'm like gagging on your patronizing bullshit right now. Ugh. We trust you said Dax, appealing for calm. We don't trust them. 
The dog's units have independent recognition overrides in their code that allows the central computer to take command, or shut them down completely in case of an emergency. These coyotes have no such code. Any attempt at modification results in termination. He turned again to face the floating dolphin. Am I correct, Joan? Joan's voice was distinguished by its lack of emotion. That is correct, Doxon Julius Abner. Unwittingly, when the original Darkpool Laboratory's mainframe was shredded in 2064, humans destroyed the only system capable of externally controlling the coyotes. They are now a free-roaming, autonomously networked organism. I return to the allegory of a flock of birds. These cyborgs are similarly predictable, yet ultimately free. Tara's glare was fierce as she fixed her eyes on Dax and William. So there you go. Dory, you still with me, girlfriend? Dorothy's resignation on the matter was long since apparent. I'm here. Good. Then you'll agree with me. Perhaps encourage your pig-headed husband to be of the same mind. They all heard Dorothy laugh as Tara continued. And realize that sometimes you just gotta have faith. Faith, said William. We're running a super steal, not a Sunday school. Dorothy's voice exclaimed. Boys, all she's trying to say is that if you love something, let it go. Do you respect these coyotes, Dax? Respectful, that design, would be an understatement. Joan is now locked on their IPv5 addresses. Has their schematics, right? Yes. Then it's time to release them. They're tagged. Joan can trace their movements, study them, and obviously they're not going to kill Tara or they would have in the yard. So let's just see what happens. Dax raised his eyebrows and looked at William pensively. William shook his head but kept quiet. That's right, said Tara lightly, twirling her hair. What she said. William scratched his sideburns and spoke to the ceiling. Faith, great. He didn't look at Dax and Tara as he walked out of the aquarium. I'll be upstairs. Thank you, Hunts with Gunpowder, Tara called pluckily after him. I don't know how fond he is of that nickname, pushed Dax. Tara shrugged and smiled. Whatever, I win. Outside the aquarium door, in the warehouse, the seven coyotes lay together in a tight formation, muzzles tucked neatly into bioskin tails that had regrown bushy and sleek for the first time in over a decade. In front of them lay the dogs' units, arranged in a flanking half-circle. Behind Siegfried, Freya, Lofen, and Snotra was the hulking mass of Thor. The warehouse echoed with little metal pings and scrapes every time Thor moved a claw or foreleg across the cement. The lights of the warehouse reflected brightly off the still's brass fractionating columns towering behind the cyborgs. All five animals popped their heads up eagerly as William walked out of the aquarium. Two through five, let's go. They're setting them free. The Rottweilers leapt to their feet, eagerly darting up the stairs into the barn. Thor, as always, remained dutiful and motionless before the coyote pack. His blue eyes glowed mournfully as he watched William pass. Don't worry, big boy. Your time will come. Thor seemed satisfied with this acknowledgement and again lowered his head to the cement with a metallic clunk. He turned back towards the coyotes, who had not moved, though Coyote One's vidorb shifted constantly, absorbing every sound and motion. Despite the tactical information downloaded to his data core by Siegfried the night of Tara's escape, the giant, military-grade cyborg still did not consider the coyotes to be a threat. 
Though yet shunned by the Rottweilers, Thor had allowed the small gray Borgs to curl up beside him in the warehouse as the humans slept through the night. Dorothy, William, and the four Rottweilers were outside the barn when Dax and Tara appeared a few minutes later. The coyotes followed them. Dorothy knelt calmly on the still wet grass before a square of turned dirt where she had been planting lily bulbs, the soil easy and pliable from the rains. Freya growled as Coyote One hopped nervously through the barn's doorway into the humid sunshine. Silence, commanded William. Freya whined and was quiet. William folded his arms across his chest proudly. He watched, attentive as a schoolteacher, as his dog's units anxiously peddled their front paws. It was difficult for them to maintain control as they watched the rest of the pack appear. The coyotes emerged from the barn one at a time. Each came with a nervous sniff of the air before leaping through the door like a poof of gray smoke. The pack wound itself in a tight, anxious circle around Tara's legs, muzzles and tongues licking her skin cautiously as they scanned their surroundings and tested the wind. This may very well be the first time these bots have seen midday sunshine, said Dax, observing their behavior. Joan's voice came through his combud. That is correct, Doxon Julius Abner. These creatures usually hibernate in camouflage dens along the riverbank during daylight hours. Despite his reservation, William was taken aback by the beauty of the coyotes and their newly repaired bioskin. Their muzzles had a flecked, brownish-orange color, while their chests were streaked with a pale white that gradually gave way to the dark gray hue that composed the rest of their coats. Their oversized ears were dark, nearly black fur triangles that twitched excitedly. To a civilian, their motions would have seemed totally natural. William, however, could see in his mind the layers of graphene circuitry that functioned as the cyborg's ear cartilage. The arrays in their ears were sensitive enough to detect the fluctuations in air pressure caused by a hawk changing its flight course overhead. The coyotes were nowhere near as advanced as the dog's units. But for their time, the design was nothing short of astounding. They represented the aurora of conscious cyborg life. Dax looked at Tara, whose eyes had been locked on Coyote One since they stepped out of the barn. Darling? Tara looked up. A tear was in her eye. They're afraid. They don't like the sunshine. How do you... Dax started, then stopped himself. Well, it's not as if we're going to give chase. No need to tarry. Send them on. Tara opened her mouth to speak, but the coyotes already knew. Coyote One led the pack across the lawn a few meters. Then all seven identical cyborgs turned in a line and faced the humans and their dogs' units. Everyone was silent. The breeze was filled with far-off sounds, the mechanical drone of a carbon dioxide scrubbing blimp far overhead, birds chirping in the distant trees beyond the yard. Dorothy caught her breath as the coyotes simultaneously bowed their heads towards William and the dog's units while tucking their tails between their legs. Tara cried openly now and leaned her head on Dax's shoulder. Voluminous tears poured down her cheeks. They're saying thank you. William narrowed his eyes and said, For not ripping us into junk metal like the rest of our clones who died in bits and pieces. He stroked Siegfried's head with quiet pride. Dorothy was the only one in earshot and rewarded her husband with a swift charley horse. Don't be an ass, she scowled then exclaimed happily. Oh, look! Like a stream flowing around a stone, the cyborgs formed up single file along the edge of the barn, moving low to the earth. They ran along the barn's edge, then disappeared around the corner one by one, dashing for the welcoming seclusion of the woods. 
Within seconds, they had vanished like wisps of morning fog and were gone. Five weeks later, Dorothy could not get the memory of the thunderstorm from her mind any more than she could rid herself of the memories of Tara Dean's touch. The coyotes had not appeared since, and the girls had spoken no more of their love. All that need be expressed was said in passing glances. Dorothy brought the vapor joint up to her mouth and took another cool drag as she leaned back in bed. She stared at her toes, pushing up the covers. She looked over at William, still slumbering, still hers, still beautiful, sad, and flawed. Yes, their apartment was good. Outside, the morning air was coming warmer as the sun rose higher in the sky. The blue jays, sparrows, and cardinals had begun to taper down their window songs and fly off to hide from the coming day. In her mind, Dorothy could see the first of the lilies she had planted that day the coyotes were released, blooming in her new flower garden by the barn entrance. The early season buff pixie lilies set to sprout first were the most bland with their beige-yellow tone, but the other varieties that would come later in season would provide a much brighter spectrum of reds and purples. Someday we'll have our own birds, in our own tree, behind our own house, with my own lily garden. She took another lazy hit off her vapor joint, then set it on the bedside table and folded her hands behind her head on the pillows. The passionate silence of the ceiling above called to her fantasies like thunder. What did Dax and Tara talk about in the penthouse room of the farmhouse? How ferocious was their lovemaking? Do they hear us? Oh, shit. Dorothy drew her toes along William's naked leg, causing him to stir. He opened a tired eye. Hello, handsome she said. What time is it? He asked gruffly, holding his head up off the pillow. Too early. Go back to bed. William collapsed back into the pillow. What are you doing up, babe? Just thinking. About what? He mumbled, already falling back into slumber. Flowers, she said, gazing out the window at the blue. I'm just thinking about when the lilies bloom. They're going to be so gorgeous. Fragmented Remains from the Cloud Diary of Doxon Julius Abner, April 9, 2081, 11.44 p.m., one year, six months before event. Farthest capabilities, if only I had Dr. Adler to explain. The resilience of the coyotes is astounding. Their pursuit of Tara was not based in malice, nor bloodthirsty cybernetic madness. Coyote One's motive should have been obvious. Life seeking to perpetuate itself. A BIOS update, literally moving the pack from Adler 1.0 to Adler 1.13. This update, though incremental, was crucial. Now functioning on 1.13, the coyotes patched three basic issues. First, the termination date on their fusion cores has been removed. Coyote One's fusion core will not auto-implode two months from now as it was scheduled to. Second, the dormant nano-surgical bots in their bioskin have been activated. Accordingly, their physical appearance is once again that of Canis Latrans. Their furs no longer ripped, shredded, their paws are covered in flesh and fur, as opposed to being the titanolume robotic claws of some monster from the ancient Holoflex. Third, the coyotes are now able to communicate on a rudimentary level with outside networks. In essence, they can talk to Joan. 
It is amazing that they can communicate at all, given the archaic hardware they have in place. The artificial cartilage of one ear is an aluminographene radio antenna. The other is a short-range transmitter. Why Tara's father chose to use an ancient 900 MHz broadcast frequency is unknown. However, it does further explain the cyborg's pack behavior. They can only communicate within 100 meters of one another. By comparison, our least advanced units, Snotra and Lofen, can stream encrypted data over a thousand kilometers with a one megabit throughput. The BIOS update lastly allowed Hugo to install a modern micro hollow projector in Coyote 6. This should assist localized pack members with field camouflage. But I digress. Tara. On the tip of Coyote 1's lower left canine tooth was a microscopic biometric lance that functioned as a simple gene sequencer. Tara's father encoded the data stream necessary to complete the BIOS update into his own daughter's blood, piggybacked onto her genetic code. After year 18 online, an automated script in Coyote One's operating system reminded her of this objective, and so the pack began its long hunt for the daughter of their creator. The very concept, let alone the fact that it proved applicable, is beyond the capabilities of even modern geneticists. What other secrets could be encoded in the data cores of these creatures? And how did Tar know that they were not trying to kill her? My private suspicion is that the coyotes may not have cared whether... Unscheduled hardware destruct. Data compromised. Initiate backup.exe for reintegration format. Loss. 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 This concludes Chapter 2.5 of The Eighteenth Shadow. Phase 2. Voices in the Stream. Please visit johnleegraftonbooks.com to sign up for the 18th Shadow mailing list. On johnleegraftonbooks.com, you can also download the free digital box set, containing the first three books in the six-part series. The free box set is available in Kindle format, as well as Smashwords, Kobo, and Barnes & Noble Nook. Remember, citizens, Kindle isn't just a thing. It's a free app you can put on your phone to start reading the 18th Shadow box set today. Prefer paperback like it's 1981? Visit Prospero's Books at 1800 West 39th Street in Kansas City, Missouri, where every phase of the 18th Shadow is available built of glue, ink, and compressed dead trees, the way books were meant to be read by real North Americans. Until next time, this is your author and narrator, John Lee Grafton, reminding you to spay and neuter your pets. And remember... If it's not cannabis, kids, don't smoke it. This has been a public service announcement of the 18th Shadow Radio. For more information, please visit johnleegraftonbooks.com. Books.com.